I want to give you all an update on where we are as a church with unified worship. As you know, uh, a few weeks ago, we pivoted our service times to... Um, to 9 o'clock and 10.30. That did not mark the start of unified worship, but we're really excited. Uh, our attendance patterns are evening out among those two services, and that's really making it easier for more people to find seats, and that's a, a great thing. Uh, we are continuing to experiment with unified worship once a month, um, but uh, we are, our, our 9 o'clock service leans more traditional. This service leans more modern, and it's our intent to continue to do that for as long as we can. When we started out, we knew that we were picking a direction that one day our church will eventually be unified in worship, um, but we didn't pick a date. And uh, But as long as we're able to do both, we're going to do both. We're able to do both now. We're always evaluating that. And should that change, uh, I will let you know, but I just want to keep everybody up to speed on that. Today, we are moving into week two of our series, uh, Dear Church. And as I was thinking about this message, I found myself this week thinking about my all-time favorite uh, basketball player, which is Kobe Bryant. And for any serious basketball play, uh, fan out there and you guys get riled up, I didn't say the greatest player of all time. Everybody knows that's Michael Jordan, um, not LeBron. Uh, He's great too. He's great too. But my favorite all-time player is Kobe Bryant. And everybody who knows basketball knows Kobe is a great player, but that didn't mean everybody respected him. But he got a new level of respect one night in a game. Um, it really only took about two seconds and it wasn't even a basketball play. Can I, can I show you what I'm talking about? Is this right here? See if you can see, if you can see it. Did you see it? We'll slow it down a little bit. He didn't even flinch. He didn't even flinch. Now, Kobe was seen with a new level of respect by a lot of people, all because he didn't flinch. And, be, and because I'm a Kobe fan, I love that moment. And maybe you can't really resonate with that because sports aren't your thing. Maybe you're more into history. And maybe you're really drawn to, to people who um, really stood resolved in a, in a pivotal moment. A guy like maybe Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me... Yeah, that guy didn't flinch at all, did he? Or maybe you're into fiction and you're drawn to characters like Samwise Gamgee who could not be intimidated into backing off of his devotion to his dear friend, Frodo. And whoever it is for you, whatever it is for you, I bet something that we all share in common is we are drawn to courage. We love it. And when there's someone who is facing certain hardship and pain and, and difficulty and they don't flinch, we love that. But here's the catch. Just because we love that in other people doesn't mean that we necessarily want to have to do that ourselves. Just because we love it when people are in circumstances and we see the virtue of, of courage come out in their lives, just because we admire that in them doesn't necessarily mean that we want to be in those same circumstances that require courage from us. And yet, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So I want you to grab a Bible and turn to this passage, or you can grab your phone and you can scroll through this passage uh, with us together. Uh, Revelation is probably the second easiest book to find in the Bible. It is the very last one. And as you're turning to it, I want to uh, give you a little backstory, a little context, and I'm going to include a nugget that we didn't talk about last week. First off, you probably remember this. We call it the book of Revelation, but it was really a letter from Jesus uh, to seven local churches. And this one letter contained inside of it seven distinct letters to seven churches uh, that existed in the first century. You could go to those sites today. They're in modern day Turkey. 
The man who wrote this, physically wrote this letter down, his name was John, um, and he received a vision, a message from Jesus to, to write this down. Now, what I didn't tell you last week is that when John received this, he was a prisoner in exile on a remote island called Patmos. And the reason that he was imprisoned is because of his preaching of the gospel, the Roman government saw him as a dissident citizen, and they tried to move him to the farthest away from influence as they possibly could. And that was probably the lowest point of his life, the lowest moment of his life. And into that moment, Jesus comes with this message of encouragement and hope and ultimate victory. So let's read together Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, and if you were here last week, you remember, we don't know if that means like a heavenly being angel or is that a symbolic way to talk about maybe a leader or a lead pastor in that church. But to that church, write this, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. What is that talking about? What is that a reference to? The resurrection. And last week we saw this, these letters started out with a reminder of the resurrection of Jesus and we see it again, uh, again in this second letter that goes to the church in Smyrna. Why is that, do you think? Why is that so important? Because none of this matters. And all of this is a waste of time if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. A dead Jesus is a worthless Jesus. But if he did rise from the dead, nothing that he said should be ignored. If Jesus did rise from the dead, nothing that he promised should be doubted. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it doesn't matter what kind of road we have to walk in life, how bumpy or difficult it is, whether we're talking individually or collectively as a church, for followers of Jesus, every road leads to victory. Because the resurrection shows that every fear is conquered and every grief is healed. I think we could say it like this, everything, everything, everything hinges on the historical reality of the resurrection. And for us to see what comes next, to hear what comes next, to live what comes next, it's going to require the same power of God that rose Jesus from the dead to be at work in our life. So let's buckle up and let's get ready. In verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Don't be what? afraid. It's not if suffering happens. It is a lock. It's a guarantee. It's coming. You're going to face pain. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face injustice. Don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the second week in a row that we get what's really an unexpected message from Jesus to local churches. And we got to remember that the church is the bride of Christ. He deeply and perfectly loves the universal church. And the universal church just means all believers everywhere for all time. But Jesus also deeply and perfectly loves every local church. And even this unexpected message is an expression of his love for the church. 
Last week, this was the unexpected message. It's better to have no church than an unloving church. And I gotta tell you, I wanna push back on that. And maybe you do too. I wanna say, hey Jesus, isn't it better to share the truth without love than to not share the truth at all? And Jesus' stunning, crystal clear answer is no. It's better to have no church than an unloving church. And this is the unexpected message this week. It's better to let a church suffer than to prevent it. And I want to push back on this too. I want to say, hey, Jesus, isn't it, isn't it better to have a protected church than a persecuted church? And the answer of Jesus is no. And clearly it's not Jesus' intent. And clearly it's not the experience that every church is going to have to navigate persecution. Many churches and many people will never experience that. And maybe that's the best way to describe our church. And many of us, and I'll put myself in that, many of us, our entire Christian life, our entire Christian experience really has been bracketed by comfort, which means that we are vulnerable. If our entire Christian experience really has been marked by comfort, it means that there is a vulnerability in us to remodel, to remake, to reconstruct the faith in the pursuit of comfort instead of the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Albert Tate is a pastor and author. He's got some words of wisdom for us, words of wisdom for those of us who carry that vulnerability. This is what he says. He says, you'll never rebuild a God that will tell you no. You'll never rebuild a God that would allow pain or disappointment in your life. So whatever you reconstruct, it won't include pain. And one of God's tools in his sanctifying process is pain. Jesus' message to this church is, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Why would he say that? What he's saying is, is I know that you don't have it as good as you want, but you have it better than maybe you can understand. I know you don't have it as good as you want, but you have it better than maybe you can understand. And I want you to make this observation with me. There are seven letters to seven very real, distinct churches, all but two of them, all but two of them, Jesus has something against them. This is one of the two churches. Jesus doesn't have anything against this church. He is not disappointed with them. He is not displeased with them in any way. But because he loves them, he wants them to receive this message. You may not have it as good as you want, but you have it better than you can understand. Now, there's a real wrestling match here, isn't there? Now, some of us might say, I don't want to be metaphorically rich, Jesus. I want to be rich, rich, Jesus. And it exposes, really, what do we value? Do we value the richness of our faith, fulfilling our purpose, and being united with him? Or do we value more our money, stuff, and comfort? If you're a note taker, I want to invite you to write this down. What you value determines how you evaluate or what we value determines how we evaluate. I learned this lesson from one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers. His name was Warren Wiersbe. He once wrote this. He said, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. 
There is an approach to life, an approach to Jesus. We'll just call it an, a religious approach. And it's if, if I perform religiously, if I do the right things, if I keep myself busy with all the right stuff, Jesus is going to put a buffer around me and my life's not going to be perfect. There'll be discomfort. But he's not going to allow me to have like deep, tragic hurt, right? That's an approach. Small problem. It's not true. Even the best religious rule keepers suffer in life. That's not something that Jesus ever promised us. And so from my heart to you, I want you to hear this. If it is your aim, if it is your goal to avoid as much difficulty and pain as you can, you will never grow up. If it is your aim, if it is your goal to avoid as much difficulty and pain as you can, you will never mature and neither will your faith. I know that there are a lot of C.S. Lewis fans in here and Maybe you grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid. Maybe you've even read those stories to kids. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when the children began to learn who Aslan was, Lucy asked the question, is he safe? And what was the answer? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. God is good, but he uses unsafe things. He uses hurt and difficulty in our lives to advance the purposes of his glory, to serve our good and to serve the good of others. So let me give you a, probably would be a much too quick overview of how God uses suffering for our good. God uses suffering to show us the strength of the object of our faith. Faith is not powerful, but who we trust in, who we give our allegiance to, who we give our faith to, that person is or is not powerful. And many of the Jesus followers in these house churches in Smyrna, they were poor. We aren't. And what I'm going to say next may not be true of all of us, but it's certainly true of the vast majority of us. From a global perspective, we are rich. And that doesn't mean that we're wrong. It doesn't mean that we're bad, but it does mean this, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to trusting our stuff more than trusting our Savior. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Poverty is not good, but if there is a gift of poverty, is that it can put you in a position where you have nothing left to trust but Jesus, and in those circumstances, you see just how good and reliable he is. Poverty is not good, but if there's a gift of poverty, it can be the perspective of being able to see just how deceptive wealth and riches are in a way that wealthy people can't see and are blind to. And there is a burden to wealth and riches. And that's as we can be distracted by our stuff and instead have a diminished view of Jesus. God uses suffering to develop humility and deepen our trust. God uses suffering to loosen our dependence on lesser things. Our problem really isn't that we trust in bad things, it's that we put too much trust in good things that are too small. God uses suffering to reveal our deepest love. He uses suffering to cultivate gratitude. Did you know that surveys show that the one common factor, the one common denominator that unites resilient people is the presence of gratitude in their life. God uses suffering to develop resilience. God uses suffering to help us comfort others. God uses suffering to draw us to himself. And here's one. God uses suffering, our suffering, to overcome opposition. And this is a message that we need, and this is a message that's too easy for us to forget. The gospel did not advance throughout history because Christians got power. The gospel advanced throughout history because of faithful followers of Jesus who suffered well. 
and the unexpected, upside-down message from Jesus and reality of his kingdom is that there's power in suffering well. Scott McKnight is a theologian and an author, and I think he just does a brilliant job of, of kind of helping us see in a, an easy way the clear message of Revelation. It's important to remember that the man who physically wrote this down, John, he was a prisoner in exile on a remote island. Scott McKnight wrote this. He says, it was a stretch for a first century imprisoned dissident tucked away on a remote island to imagine the mighty empire of Rome losing out to a presently captive Jerusalem. But that is the message of Revelation then with implications for us now. The circumstances that John was in, the circumstances that those Christians were in in the house churches in Smyrna, it left no doubt Rome is going to stomp us into the dust. Rome is going to stamp out and snuff out the gospel movement. And yet the continual message from Jesus throughout the book of Revelation is I will overcome. Rome is going to fall. Nothing can stand against it. The gospel will overcome. But who could have believed that? This summer, I got to go to Croatia and I saw what was for me an unforgettable reminder of how Jesus keeps his promise. The, in 313, Constantine was the emperor of the Roman Empire and he made it safe and legal to be a Christian. First time ever that it was safe and legal to be a Christian, they had protected status. The emperor right before him was a man named Diocletian and he led the last wave of persecution against Christians in the Roman Empire. It was the most brutal campaign of persecution against Christians in the history of Rome. Um, towards the end of his life, he wanted to retire, and he built a palace by the sea in what is today split Croatia. You can go there and you can see it. And he spent his final days in retirement, and he handed the Roman Empire over to the next group of guys. And you could go to the palace today, and do you know what you will find? In the center of Diocletian's palace, you will find a church. And in the center of that church, you will find this. It is a tomb of a local bishop from that city who was martyred, who was murdered at the order of Diocletian. Do you think that that bishop could ever anticipate? Do you think that his congregation could ever predict that one day nobody would care about who Diocletian was and in Diocletian's palace they would build a beautiful church and that this man's remains would be brought into that church and entombed as a reminder Jesus keeps his promises and the gospel overcomes. There is power in suffering well. And so I want to ask you this question. Is there anything that could happen to us that would cause us to flinch in the face of hardship or flicker and fade instead of reflecting Jesus. And to help us get really candid with ourselves, I have a couple of follow-up questions. What did we learn about our ability to face hardship and reflect Jesus since 2020? To make it really personal, what did I learn about my ability to face hardship and reflect Jesus during, and you can fill in the blank with whatever, hardship you had to walk through. What do we want the answer to be? Jesus says to this church, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
When I say synagogue of Satan, does anybody feel a little uncomfortable with that? Does that feel a little offensive? My wife and I were talking about this. She's like, that feels offensive. So if you feel that way, you're not alone. I don't think it is offensive, but I could totally understand when you read synagogue of Satan, that that's your first response. It probably helped us to know the background and the context. And the Roman Empire, especially in a city like Smyrna that was so enmeshed with the imperial cult, and what that means is this. It was the law that you had to worship the emperor as though he was a god. That was the law. There's only one group of people in uh, the Roman Empire who were given an exemption that they didn't have to do that. Do you know who it was? It was Jewish people. And at this time in Smyrna, it's very likely that the majority of Jesus' followers in these churches were Jewish people who followed Jesus. And what's going on is some, not all, but some people in the Jewish community who don't follow Jesus, they're lying about and they're slandering these Jewish Christians. And they're trying to get the government to force them to worship the emperor because they know Christians will refuse and when they do, they'll be punished. And this is where we see a very nasty irony. Jewish people are the chosen people of God. And they were marked and defined by monotheism. They only worshiped the God of the Bible. Some, not all, some people from that community were conspiring with the Roman government to try to get Christians to worship a God that they knew was a false God. And Jesus is saying, they're not just conspiring with the government, they're conspiring with Satan himself. They're conspiring with the purposes of Satan, and that's how grievous that sin is. Now, Nothing in this passage is about racism. But as your pastor, I think I owe it to you to acknowledge that this terminology right here has been twisted and abused as a license for racism, particularly anti-Semitism. There have been prominent Christian leaders in our lifetime, prominent beloved Christian leaders in our lifetime who have used this expression to try to encourage American politicians to oppose wealthy and influential Jewish Americans. That's just wrong. That's horrible. People who know and love the Bible have engaged in dishonoring the dignity of people of other ethnicities and use differences as an excuse to engage in wrongs. And some of those wrongs are relatively minor. And some of those wrongs are so severe that it's probably impossible for us to calculate the magnitude of their evil. And people who know and love Jesus have participated in that. And what I'm talking about is not a relic of history. It's an ongoing reality. And I know that talking about the sins of racism are uncomfortable and for probably a confluence of reasons Across our country and across churches, there's an underdeveloped ability to talk about the ongoing sins of racism in a healthy and helpful way. Something you got to know about me is uh, I was born on a Sunday. My mama had me in church on the very next Sunday, and I've missed very few Sundays since. I've got 25 years of pastoral ministry in churches in the South, the West Coast, the Mountain West, and now the Midwest. From my own experience, I can tell you too many church people want to talk about the sins of racism as though they are solved. Does that make sense? Have we solved the sin of greed yet? 
Have we solved the sin of pride yet? How about the sin of lust? Have we solved that one? Have we solved the sin of lying yet? We got all those sins and more in our own congregation. And that's not a dig. I mean, if I'm getting honest with you, I've got, my sin goes deeper than I even know how to acknowledge. And the reason that I could say we got those sins and more in our congregation is because we're not in heaven yet. Like we're still being sanctified. We're still being matured. Is there anybody who'd be willing to say that there's a category of your life in which you're morally perfect? Like, would any of us say we're morally perfect when it comes to honoring the dignity of the opposite sex? Anybody want to stand up and claim that one? Is there anybody who would say we're morally perfect when it comes to honoring the dignity of people who get on our nerves? Is there anybody who would say we're morally perfect when it comes to honoring the dignity of someone who's in a different age demographic? Is there anyone who would honestly say that we're morally perfect when it comes to honoring the dignity of people in a different socioeconomic bracket? Like if I stood up here today and told you guys, here's a category of my life in which I'm morally perfect, you should all be like me, who's running for the door? That'd make me a wackadoo cult leader. Of course we can acknowledge we're not morally perfect. I mean, it should be safe. It should be flat out reasonable for us to say, listen, there are areas in our life where we're not morally perfect. There's no area of our life where we're morally perfect, including honoring the dignity of people of different ethnicities. Now, I am not labeling anybody in here racist, but I am labeling us something. You know what I am? I'm labeling us sinners. And we are sinners who are deeply loved. No one should be more able than us. No one should be more able than us to admit our vulnerability to sin. That is how secure we are in Jesus. And so this should just be the ongoing, never-ending, prayerful disposition of Jesus' followers. Jesus, if there is anything in me that dishonors you or dishonors the dignity of someone else, would you show me? No matter how big or small it is, I'm open to you showing it to me. I'm open to you using someone else to show it to me. Can you guys pray that too? Like, I want to be able to pray that. Jesus, I'm open to you using someone else to show it to me. I want to love you and to love others the way you so generously love me. We need good news. And there is good news. That Jesus perfectly kept the law for us. That on the cross, Jesus shed all of his blood to cover all of our sin. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he has the power to give new life and to make us brand new. And the way that we receive that is by repenting. We return from our way and we turn to him and we trust him in faith. And for those of us who do that, we get to walk together. And if walking together means that we've got to face down our own sin or we have to face down sin that is committed against us, the same power of God that rose Jesus from the dead sustains us. And so Jesus could say this to this church, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will suffer persecution for 10 days. That's probably more symbolic than literal. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Jesus is saying, it's coming. Don't be afraid. 
It's only going to last for a limited amount of time. Jesus is saying, I know what's going to happen before it happens, and you will not have to endure it one second longer than I allow. Now, people who love theology and people who love uh, philosophy that can get together and debate, does Jesus knowing in advance mean that Jesus caused it? That debate is, does knowledge equal causation debate? If you're having that debate, you can invite me. You just got to buy my first beverage, okay? But that debate, while important, is not the big point. The big point is this. Jesus is sovereign over it all. And the sovereignty of Jesus means this. It doesn't mean that he causes everything. The sovereignty of Jesus means that he is the authority. And the sovereignty of Jesus means, doesn't necessarily mean that he causes everything that happens, but there is nothing that happens that he doesn't allow. And there is not one thing in all of the universe, there's not a single solitary event in all of human history that doesn't happen without his permission. There's nothing that ever happens that overrides his authority. And those believers in the early churches at Smyrna, they could rest in that. And we can rest in that too. And a way that we rest in that is by remembering this. We overcome by what he did, not by what we do. We overcome by what he did, not what we do. If we're lied about, we trust in Jesus. If we're slandered, we trust in Jesus. If we're thrown in prison, we trust in Jesus. If we are the recipients of injustice, we trust in Jesus. If we lose our freedoms or we lose some of our rights, we trust in Jesus. The way forward is to not get back at people. The way forward is not to stick it to people. The way forward is not to get as much power as we can so we can leverage it over people. The way forward is to trust Jesus. And this is your lean-in moment. This is what that means to trust Jesus. In every situation, trusting Jesus means follow his commands and follow his example. Follow his commands and follow his example. And when we face certain hardship and pain, when people do us wrong in a way that we don't deserve, when injustice comes our way, especially when it's because of our allegiance to him. We follow his commands and we follow his example. And what that means is we choose to suffer well. And we see this in Jesus. We see this on the cross. He overcame by suffering well. And the resurrection gives us every confidence that his way is better than our way. The resurrection gives us every confidence that his way is best. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you remember our series thesis? It's based on this line. Knowing the truth, it doesn't change anything. Submitting to the truth changes everything. Or we could say, yeah, 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 I, I, I know. Or we could say, yeah, this is the truth. And I happily place myself underneath it. I'm going to submit to it and I'm going to align with it. We get to decide how we respond. We get to decide if we're going to respond to this unexpected message from Jesus with humility. Are we going to respond with hubris and pride? The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. We know that everybody dies. But what does the second death mean? It is a biblical way of describing what the afterlife is like for those who refuse to worship and trust in Jesus. And there's all kinds of imagery used to try to, to try to communicate that. You'll find some of the Old Testament. You'll find a lot in the New Testament. 
And the whole point of the imagery is this, is to communicate the deep tragedy, the deep tragedy of what it means to be made in the image of God and to be loved by God, but to be separated from him for all eternity. And I would not be a loving pastor and I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I did not remind us of this. Everyone spends forever somewhere. Everyone spends forever somewhere. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this should inspire us. This should inspire us to face well whatever is in front of us. It should inspire us as we remember that sometimes the gospel plays out on the stage of our weaknesses and our suffering. And there are times that the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus, there are times that the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus is more easily seen in our suffering than in our successes. And if that is the case, may we say by his power, Jesus, no matter what comes, I am with you. Jesus, no matter what comes, by your power, help me not to flinch. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have questions, if you don't know where you stand and you're trying to figure this out, I recognize that maybe this message sounds like I'm talking you out of following Jesus. But if he did rise from the dead, what could keep you from taking him seriously? If Jesus truly did rise from the dead, what could keep you from surrendering and submitting your life to him and saying, Jesus, come what may, I am with you. Would you say, Jesus, I know that I'm a moral mess up. I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross and that you rose from the dead. I am with you. I trust in you. And if you were to say that to him in prayer, the Bible promises that the spirit of God comes in you and Jesus holds you in his hand and there is nothing, nothing, nothing that could ever separate you from his love or cause him to let you go. Would you trust in him? You pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this letter to the church at Smyrna. I thank you for making sure that it's read by every church and that our church gets to hear it. Um, as I stand up in here and, and, and talk about this, God, I'm grateful for the privilege, but I recognize that I am just the worst example of this. I'm so incredibly relieved that when I am faithless, Jesus is faithful. And when our faith falls short, his never does. And ultimately, our hope is what he has done, not what we do. May we be people who lock arms together. May we be people who love each other well, the way that we've been loved by him. May we be people who, come what may, by your power, we don't flinch. And may we be people who you use to help others see the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus so that they could know him too. And it's in his name we pray, amen.